I'm really excited about next week's passage. If you have the chance this week, I'd encourage you to read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Uh, I suspect that it will probably challenge you in many ways. I don't know how it couldn't, to be honest with you. But I'm also equally excited about this week's passage because I think it'll fit everything that we've been talking about so far. It's amazing how that works. God in his providence makes a book come together and it just all starts to make perfect sense. So the hope today as we finish chapter one is that God would speak. All right, so to that end, let me pray here. Father, we are... uh, Oh, we are so grateful that we have the opportunity to study your word. And we are praying that above all else that today that we would hear from your voice. Uh, we know that what we need more than anything, and I say this week after week, is we need to hear from you. And so we're praying that that is exactly what would happen today, that we would hear your voice, that your word would speak, that I would be faithful to the task at hand, which is faithfully preaching your word. I pray that I would rightly handle the word of God this morning so that the people in this congregation can be blessed by the preaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I was growing up, the highlight of my summer was almost always the Little Charger football camp. I grew up in the small town of Sheraton, Iowa, home of one high school, the Sheraton Chargers, and every year the high school coaches would host this football camp for kids in elementary or middle school. And I loved Little Charger football camp. I loved it because in the town I grew up in, uh, really a lot of the community would go to the games on Friday night. And so when you're in elementary school, you get to see all these high school heroes on the field. And then you go to Little Charger football camp and you get to meet your heroes in person. It was great. I love Little Charger football camp because I love playing football. I loved it because for some reason they had watermelon every year and the watermelon was always better than any watermelon I'd ever had anywhere else or since. I don't know what it was about Little Charger football camp watermelon, but it was fantastic. And every year I couldn't wait to get some watermelon after the camp. But most of all, I love the fact that every year we got a t-shirt. It was always one of the best days of my year. Looking back, I'm not sure why, because every year the shirt was almost exactly the same. It was the Charger football camp, or the Charger helmet, and then Charger football camp, and then either a schedule on the back or some really cheesy slogan, all right? Uh, So one year, I remember, for some reason, we were red and silver, but they decided to make a purple shirt, and it said, like, welcome to Charger World, where the name of the game is Pain, which I'm sure was meant to intimidate other towns, and I have no doubt did not do that at all. But for whatever reason, they would make up all these crazy slogans, right? And looking back, I think probably a disproportionate amount of these shirts said something about Sheraton Pride or Charger Pride, which I always thought was a little strange. And it wasn't just... It wasn't just that sport. It wasn't just little football camp, but almost every sport in Sheraton at some point or another would have something about Sheraton pride or Charger pride. And it wasn't just my town. I noticed this in towns around us. It was this idea of pride, like Albia pride, Knoxville pride. I'm just naming small Iowa towns here. But all of them would have these shirts that would say something pride, which I thought was strange. Listen, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I knew enough about the Bible to know that pride was not a good thing, right? In fact, I even knew the proverb that pride comes before destruction. And so I'm not saying that I would... Uh, think about this a lot, and I'd philosophize every time I put on these shirts. But when I did think about it, I always thought it was odd that they would say Sheraton Pride. Why would you do that, right? You would never put on their Sheraton, murderous thoughts. You would never do that, right? Or Charger Lust. At least I hope you wouldn't, right? Like you wouldn't put sin on a shirt like that. And yet for some reason, they would always put on this t-shirt, Charger Pride. Now, full disclosure, I don't think the guys who made these t-shirts were thinking biblically, all right? And I don't think that they were thinking about the ramifications of whether this was pride comes before the fall or anything like that, right? And I don't know what their intent was, but I suspect, I'm just guessing here, their intent was not to talk about the same type of pride as we're talking about in Proverbs 16, pride leads to destruction. What I think they meant was this, that every time we put on a Charger jersey, every time we wear the Sheraton gear, we should always think and act in a way that represented the town, 
We were supposed to have pride. We were supposed to make the people that were supporting us, again, because we're in a small community, we were supposed to act in a way that was befitting of being a person from Sheraton. In fact, our coaches would say things like this. The town I grew up in was mostly blue-collar and hardworking, and so our coaches would say things like, if anyone knows how to work hard, it's someone from Sheraton. You should never be outworked by anyone. The idea being that you should live in a way that represents your community. That every time you step on the field, you should always be doing everything to represent the people in the stands. To make sure that you're living, or in this case, playing in a way that's befitting of the fact that you're from Sheraton. Now, for the record, I do not think that Paul handed out shirts that said Philippi Pride. In fact, I feel entirely confident he did not do that. However, I think he's actually getting at a similar principle in Philippians 1 at the end of the chapter. I'll explain it in a minute. It's a much more important principle, but it's the same idea. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. So this is what Emily read just a minute ago. Let me read it again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you, ha- you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Right, so verse 27, depending on your translation, may say different things. In the ESV, it says, only let your manner of life. In the NIV, I believe it says something along this line. It says, no matter what happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. A more literal translation might even say, live as citizens. In Philippians 3, it gets at this idea that we are citizens of a different kingdom. The point, though, whatever your translation says is fairly straightforward. No matter what happens, only live in a way that reflects the truth of the gospel. Live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. In much the same way that my high school football coaches would say, conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of a person from Sheraton. In much the same way, but on a much more important scale, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of those who follow Christ. Or to say it another way, in light of the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, live accordingly. That's what he's saying. He will come back to this principle again and again in the book of Philippians. And I would contend that this is a principle we see throughout the New Testament. That we should live in light of the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and that that should change everything. We should live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Now hear me clearly, because there's always the risk of being misunderstood. We are saved by grace alone, period. Right? You are only saved, you are only made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, period. It's not anything you do. We're not talking about earning salvation. We're not talking about living in such a way so that you can be worthy of the gospel. What we are saying is that if you are saved, if you are a Christian, and you are here this morning, that you should live in a way that reflects the reality that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And everything in your life should be lived in accordance with that. Which, of course, as always, begs the question, well, what does that look like? To live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, what does that mean? Certainly, it, mean lots, it means lots of different things. In fact, I'd say it's probably impossible to come up with an exhaustive list of what it, would look like, what it would look like if we were to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. But in this particular passage, I think the way the passage flows is that Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and then he starts giving some examples. I think he gives three here. 
Right, the first one he gives is this, that we should stand firm in one spirit. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent. In other words, whether I'm here or not doesn't matter. Live this way. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel means that we stand firm. means that we stand firm. For the Philippians, the idea of opposition was real. Right? Their leader, Paul, was in prison. And no doubt, many in Philippi were being actively opposed by those who hated the gospel. And so this is a good word for the Philippians. Paul encourages them, stand firm. But I would argue it's a good word for us. So we've talked about this in past weeks. And maybe you don't need me to tell you this again because you already know it's true. But opposition to the gospel is coming. In fact, it's already here. In this country, in this state, In the city you live in, in the neighborhood you live in, amongst your circle of friends, there are some who are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says here is a good word for all of us. Stand firm. Be steadfast. Hold on to the faith. Our role is to continually hold on to and hold out the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what opposition comes, no matter how much we may be frightened, which we'll get to here in just a little bit, our job is to stand firm. Because we believe this message is true, that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, right? And that he died so that we might have life. And we want to hold on to that message no matter what comes our way. We want to stand firm, and we want to do it in one spirit which hints at this idea that we are to be united in our steadfastness. That this is not something we are to do alone, but something we are to do together. Which leads to the next point. That we are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Look at verse 27 again. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The word strive that is used here in the Greek would commonly be used to describe an athletic contest. Maybe even specifically it might be used in a situation like this. Where gladiators are fighting side by side in the arena to accomplish a common goal. And so here we are again, right? This is probably three of the first four messages in Philippians. is talking about this idea of living out our faith together. You know... When I picked the book of Philippians, it wasn't a very scientific process, all right? Uh, when I came here, I thought, okay, what book should I first preach when I come to the church? And honestly, the reason I picked Philippians is because it's a book about joy. And I think most people like joy. And so I thought, if I'm coming here, I should start with Philippians. That would be a wise place to start. Plus, there's so many passages in this book that have transformed my life in Philippians 2 and 3 and 4 and even 1. I thought, this would be a good book for me to preach. And frankly, one of my seminary professors said, if you ever go to a church, one of the best books to start in is Philippians. And so all of those things in mind, I thought, you know what, I should pick Philippians. But the more we're getting into it, I'm seeing over and over that one of the themes is this idea that we should live out our faith together. So maybe you were thinking that I'm picking the book of Philippians because I just want to beat that horse into the ground or whatever old cliche you want to use, right? Maybe you're thinking, I just wanted to beat one drum, live your faith together. I'm telling you, it wasn't that scientific. I'm just saying it's here, right? Week after week, it's just here. And that's the great value of preaching through a book verse by verse, right? You can't run from it. You may say, okay, we've heard it. We get it. But here we are again, right? You cannot run from it. When it's here, you just have to preach it. And so here we are again preaching. And again, we see this idea that we are to live out our faith together. 
So if you were here last week and we talked about this idea of finding our joy in Christ and helping others to find joy in Christ. If you were here last week and we talked about helping others to progress in their faith, maybe you thought when you came today that you would be off the hook, right? Maybe that idea scared you and you're like, I don't know about living out our faith together. And so you thought that maybe today you would escape, but Philippians will not let us off the hook. Because here we are again, living side by side for the faith of the gospel. And for some reason, we understand in other areas of life that this is necessary. We get in other areas of life that we need other people. But when it comes to Christianity, this is often a hard topic for us to be able to grasp. So, let me, let me illustrate this here. Let me give you a couple of examples of other areas of life where we understand that we need to work together. And since the word that Paul uses here is probably meant to be or used oftentimes in the context of athletic imagery, let me give you a sports analogy, all right? And for those of you who don't like sports at all, don't worry, I have another analogy also that I will give you. And I'll try to explain this as best I can, all right? So let me give you a football analogy. Our senior year of high school, we made the state high school football playoffs, and in the first round, we played the mighty Keokuk Chiefs. They had a linebacker, Tamimi Yawi, that I'm pretty sure ate small children for breakfast. He was amazing, right? Like, he would just gobble up people. He would tackle them. He was incredible. And they had this other guy who was incredibly fast, one of the fastest guys in the state. They were number three in the state. They were undefeated. On paper, Keokuk was way better than us. But they could not stop our running back. So for those of you uninitiated to football, running back is the guy who carries the ball, right? He tries to advance it. They could not stop him. In fact, um, Charles DeBach was our running back. I don't know if he ran for a school record, but he ran for almost 300 yards, if I remember my stats correctly. It's been a long time, but I think it was close to 300 yards. It was incredible. They just couldn't stop him. We ran one play almost 20 times in the game because they just couldn't stop it. And after the game, the newspapers were talking about how great Charles was, and rightfully so. He was the star of the game. But when we went back and watched the film the next week, here's what we discovered. The reason why Charles was doing so great was not just because he was a good running back, but because the people in front of him, the linemen, these are the people who block or shield or defend. I'm trying to explain as many ways as I can for you non-football fans, right? Like, they're trying to keep the guy from getting tackled. Our linemen were just destroying their linemen, right? Like, that's the reason why he was doing so great. So listen, Charles would not have been great had it not been for the fact that these other guys were working side by side with him. Now, the opposite is true too, right? No matter how great the lineman blocked, if every time Charles got the ball, he just tripped and fell over, it wouldn't have mattered. Right? But the point is that striving side by side, that's how they accomplish something great. We get that when it comes to sports, right? A great running back would never say, my linemen were terrible, I'm amazing. They never say that because it's always working side by side. Now, again, I recognize that for some of you, when I start talking about linebackers and linemen, like your eyes start glazing over. And uh, I might as well be speaking Turkish for some of you. I get that, all right? So let me give you another analogy, all right? This one is from the world of kids. I'm actually borrowing this from a guy named Ben Trueblood because I thought it was really helpful. And it involves around the game Red Rover. I don't know if you've ever played the game Red Rover. Um, I played it a lot growing up. I don't know how much kids play it anymore because it's kind of dangerous. And in our lawsuit, happy society, we should get rid of all danger, right? Like, so Red Rover, um, for those of you uninitiated to the culture of Red Rover, I'll just explain it to you quickly. All right, so uh, usually I would guess that you have at least 20 people playing this game. It's a large group game, and you'd have 10 people. So we'll just say for the sake of this illustration, there's 20 people, right? So 10 people on one side, they're all holding hands. 10 people on the other side, they're all holding hands. And so if you're on the team, you're holding hands with the person next to you, and you look at the other team, and you call, let's say, Floyd's on the other team. I feel confident there's no Floyd here today, but if there is, 
Sorry, you're part of the game now, right? So uh, Floyd, you call it, hey, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Floyd right over, right? And so you would hold hands, and if Floyd's a good Red Rover player, he's looking for the weak link, trying to break through, because his whole goal is the two people are holding hands, is that he runs through and he breaks the link and he gets through. I don't know if you're familiar with this game. If not, this is probably a strange analogy, but hopefully you are, okay? So uh, the whole goal is just to break through. Now, if you are a good Red Rover team, you work together. Okay, the way you stop that is the two people who are holding arms, they will give a little bit, right? Like if you just try to stand firm, it's going to break almost every time, but you give a little bit. And if the team is really good, they will all give together. They'll all give together, right? The the whole line will move back. That's how you keep the person from breaking through. So the point of all this, hopefully, is pretty clear by now, right? You cannot be a good running back without a good offensive lineman. And you cannot play Red Rover by yourself, right? You can't. I mean, can you imagine this, hey, Floyd, come on over. Oh, you made it, right? Because there's no one holding your hand. Of course he's going to make it. You can't play Red Rover by yourself. You can't be a great football player by yourself. We get this when it comes to other things. If you've ever been in a workplace, you probably understand you have to work with other people. If you've ever been a part of a family, you probably understand relationships matter, right? Like you have to do things together. And yet for some reason, when it comes to Christianity, we just dismiss this. And we think that Christianity is just an individual thing. It's not true. For some strange reason, we just dismiss it when it comes to Christianity. And yet, the New Testament relentlessly pursues this idea that we must live out our faith together. And don't get me wrong. There is an individual element to our faith, right? No one else can decide for you that you're going to follow Christ. But the New Testament is relentless on this. Philippians is relentless on this. That we must strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. And yet it's easy for us to dismiss this as just something that we're not used to. Maybe we say things like, well, you know, I'm just too busy to live out my Christian faith with other people. Or I'm not used to living this way. Or I'm a private person. Or I don't even know what I would do. And so we make all these reasons as to why we would not do it. We just kind of dismiss it. We say, well, yeah, this idea of striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, that sounds good in theory. It just doesn't fit my life. And so instead, we just keep doing what we've always done, which is we try to live out our faith by ourselves. We come to church on Sundays. Maybe we even go to care group, but we never really let people in. We never really talk about how we can increase in our faith. But here's the problem with that. It's kind of like trying to be a great running back without an offensive lineman or trying to play Red Rover by yourself. It just doesn't work. So again, I think we're being called here in Philippians to strive together to live out our faith together. But the question, of course, is what does this mean? What do I mean when I say that we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel? So last week, we talked about this idea of helping others to progress in their faith and find their joy in Christ. There's a word we might use for that. Discipleship, right? Discipleship is helping others to progress in their faith and find their joy in Christ. When I say the word discipleship, I'm guessing that a lot of you have a lot of different things come to your mind, right? Some of you immediately think of a program that the church does. Or others of you think of two people meeting one-on-one to talk about their faith. Or others of you think of a small group getting together. Or others of you, when I talk about discipleship, you're like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Which, by the way, that's okay too, right? But when I'm talking about discipleship, this is what I mean, is that we're living together in such a way that we're helping others to progress in the faith and find their joy in Christ. I'm defining it straight from Philippians. Now, that might mean that there's a program. 
And it might mean that we have one-on-one meetings. And it might mean that we meet in small groups. But it's also a lot more informal than that. So let me give you some examples. This is discipleship, right? Let's say that after the service, we go into the fellowship room and we start having food. And one of your kids, or maybe one of my kids, right? I I could think of a couple of potential uh, people from my family that might fit this bill, right? But one of your kids starts going crazy, right? Starts throwing the greatest spit of all time. We've, we've had those moments even, yes, even today. I'll, I'll be honest, right? Like, we have young kids, so that happens, right? But here's discipleship, is that you handle that in a way that's honoring to Christ and consistent with the Bible. And as other families are watching what's happening, they are encouraged by the way that you're handling your kids. And they are seeing what it looks like to handle your family in a godly way. That's discipleship too, right? Discipleship is you calling a friend when you're having a difficult week, and they pray for you, and they point you to Christ. That too is discipleship. Discipleship is that you're struggling in your marriage, and you start hanging around other couples who, by the grace of God, have a marriage that is thriving, and you see them, and occasionally they do talk specifically about marriage, and occasionally they do talk about how Christ relates to marriage, but sometimes you just eat dinner together. Or you play cards together, or you do whatever together, and you notice that as they interact with one another, that that's what a marriage should look like. That too is discipleship, right? Here's the point. Discipleship is living out all of life together so that we can help others to progress in the faith and find their joy in Christ. And so when we talk about striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, what we mean is this, that in everything we do, Christ impacts our life. And that rubs off on other people. Right? That Christ is commonly being talked about, but really, more than anything, Christ is being lived out in our lives on a day-to-day basis. That we are striving side-by-side for the faith of the gospel. And that last part of the equation is really important, too. That we are striving for the faith of the gospel. We're not just striving to be nice to each other. We're not just striving to be good friends in a worldly sense. We're striving to make sure that we are following Christ. Why? Because Christ is more important than anything. Right? That's at the forefront of our relationships. So again, I know it feels like I'm just beating this horse to death, right? Like I'm just saying it every week. Like live out our faith together. But this is what Philippians is teaching. Stride by, side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. Striving to hold on to this idea that Jesus is a great Savior and we are great sinners. Now the point this morning is not to give you an A to Z of what that looks like. Because the truth is, for every person that will look differently. But the point is, to get you to see once again, this idea is biblical. This idea of striving side, to get, side by side together for the faith of the gospel is inescapably biblical. If you read the book of Philippians with any sort of sincerity, you'll notice this is a theme. If you read the New Testament with any sort of sincerity, you'll notice this is a theme, living together. So my hope this morning is that you're realizing, I need this. And I hope you're starting to consider in your mind, what would that look like for me? And I hope you're also realizing that this is a way that we live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. All right, one last thing. In terms of living in a way that's worthy of the gospel, we want to not be frightened by our opponents. Verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Not frightened by your opponents. If you think about it, this is the way Jesus lived, right? Jesus lived this way. He was not afraid of his opponents. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not run and he did not fight when his opponents came to get him. Instead, to the very end, he was praying that they would be forgiven. He did not fear his opponents. 
And if we're wanting to live in a way that honors Christ, then we will want to live this way too. Listen, it's possible. In fact, I think it's probable that in the days to come, our opponents, and by opponents here, I just mean opponents of the gospel, will threaten things to try to frighten us. Right? They may say, or they may do things like call us names. The hope being that we will shrink away from our faith. Or they may threaten to charge us with crimes if we're proclaiming the gospel or proclaiming certain parts of the Bible about certain ways of living, right? They may threaten to charge us with crimes. Or they may threaten us financially. They may say, if you're going to preach all the Bible the way it's read or the way it normally reads, the way it's historically been read, if you're going to preach it that way, then we're going to take away your tax-exempt status as a church. That may happen. Or it may happen that they eventually throw us into jail because of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or eventually, it may even happen that they threaten to kill us. Certainly, certainly this happens across the world. But let us resolve now that no matter what comes, we will not back down. Let us resolve now that we will not be frightened by our opponents, but instead we will entrust ourselves to a God who has all the power. Let us decide now that that is the course we will take. And as that happens, Philippians reminds us that this will be a sign to our opponents of their destruction. Our lack of fear will be a sign to them of their destruction and a reminder to us of our salvation. Listen, I, I cannot think of a better example of this than a story that I found in Desiring God by John Piper. The story fits perfectly. I, normally I wouldn't read this long of an excerpt, but it's so powerful and it's so fitting for what we're talking about. I want to read at length here from this book, Desiring God by John Piper. Let me read here. One of the most moving and incredible accounts of suffering filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is found in Sergei Kordakov's autobiography, The Persecutor. Kordakov was commissioned by the Russian secret police to raid prayer gatherings and to persecute believers with extraordinary brutality. But the afflictions of one believer changed his life. So what follows here is Sergei Kordakov writing, I saw Viktor Mateyev reach and grab for a young girl, Natasha Zadanova, who was trying to escape to another room. She was a beautiful young girl. What a waste to be a believer, I thought. Victor caught her, picked her up above his head, and held her high in the air for a second. She was pleading, don't, please don't, dear God, help us. Victor threw her so hard, she hit the wall at the same height she was thrown, then dropped to the floor, semi-conscious moaning. Victor turned and laughed and exclaimed, I'll bet the idea of God went flying out of her head. On a later raid, Sergei was shocked to see Natasha again. I quickly surveyed the room and I saw a sight I couldn't believe. There she was, the same girl. It couldn't be, but it was. Only three nights before, she had been at the other meeting and had been viciously thrown across the room. So this was just three days after. It was the first time I really got a good look at her. She was more beautiful than I first remembered. A very beautiful girl with long, flowing blonde hair, large blue eyes, and smooth skin. One of the most naturally beautiful girls I've ever seen. I picked her up and flung her on a table face down. Two of us stripped her clothes off. One of my men held her down and I began to beat her again and again. My hands began to sting under the blows. Her skin started to blister. I continued to beat her until pieces of bloody flesh came off of my hand. She moaned but fought desperately not to cry. To suppress her cry, she bit her lower lip until it was bitten through and blood ran down her, cheek, or down her chin. At last, she gave in and began sobbing. When I was exhausted, I couldn't raise my arm for even one more blow, and her backside was a mass of raw flesh. I pushed her off the table, and she collapsed on the floor. To Sergei's shock, he later encountered her at yet another prayer meeting, but this time something was different. There she was again, Natasha Zadanova. Several of the guys saw her too, Alex Guyelov, Moved toward Natasha, hatred filling his face, his club raised above his head. Then something I never expected to see suddenly happened. Without warning, Victor jumped between Natasha and Alex, facing Alex head on. Get out of my way, Alex shouted angrily. 
Victor's feet didn't move. He raised his club and said menacingly, Alex, I'm telling you, don't touch her. No one touches her. I listened in amazement. Incredibly, one of my most brutal men was protecting one of the believers. Get back, he shouted to Alex. Get back or I'll let you have it. He shielded Natasha, who was cowering on the floor. Angered, Alex shouted, you want her for yourself, don't you? No, Victor shouted back. She has something we don't have. Nobody touches her, nobody. For one of the first times in my life, I was deeply moved. Natasha did have something. She had been beaten horribly. She had been warned and threatened. She had gone through unbelievable suffering. But here she was again. Even Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. I wanted to run after her and ask, what is it? I wanted to talk to her, but she was gone. This heroic Christian girl had suffered so much that her hands somehow touched and troubled me very much. The Lord later opened Sergei's heart to the glorious good news of Christ. As he later reflected on Natasha, whom he never saw again, he wrote, And finally, to Natasha, whom I beat terribly and who is willing to be beaten a third time for her faith, I want to say, Natasha, largely because of you, my life is now changed and I'm a fellow believer in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has forgiven me. I hope you can also. Thank you, Natasha, wherever you are. I will never, never forget you. That's exactly what we're talking about in Philippians 1. That as we are unfrightened by our opponents, it will be a clear sign to them of their destruction and a clear reminder to us of our salvation. Listen, if you're a non-believer here today, I won't pretend that all of us in this room would have the courage of Natasha, although I hope we would. But even as we talk about this idea of not being frightened, if you're a non-believer here today, I hope you realize that we really do believe that this message is true. And our goal is to not back down. Our goal is to stand firm because we really believe that there's one message that brings life and that's that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And I hope as we talk about this idea of standing firm, as we talk about this idea of not being frightened, I hope that if you're a non-believer, you would be encouraged to check out this message for yourself and figure out if they're willing to suffer this much for the message, maybe it really is true. And if you're a believer, I hope that one of the reasons you'd be willing to suffer is because of what we read in verses 29 and 30. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I love the Bible. And one of the reasons I love the Bible is because it's so countercultural. It's so weird, right? There's sometimes where it says things, you're like, that doesn't even make sense. But I look at the world around us, and I think about how messed up it is. And I look at the Bible, and I realize that the Bible is saying things that are completely contrary to the culture. And I wonder, maybe the Bible's right. In fact, I don't wonder. I know it is. But verse 29 is weird, right? It's weird that we would be granted not only faith, but to suffer for the sake of Christ. There are lots of things that we would want to be granted. We might hope that our kids are granted a scholarship. We might hope that our birthday wish is granted. We might hope that we are granted permission for something. But all the things that we're granted are always good. Right? You would never expect a police officer, to set, a police officer to come up to your car and say, hey, I'm granting you a speeding ticket today. That's not granting, right? That's forcing. I'm giving you one, right? Or you would never expect the IRS to call you and say, hey, we're granting you the right to pay more taxes next year. That's not a grant, right? And yet verse 29 for some reason says that it has been granted to us that we should suffer for Christ. Seems like forced would be a better word, and yet here it is, granted. But perhaps the reason why this is hard for us to understand 
is because we've missed the meaning of suffering. We have the privilege of suffering for the one who died on the cross for us. We have the privilege of developing character through suffering. We have the privilege of becoming more like Jesus through suffering. Now, as we talked about in the retreat a couple of weeks ago, there is a sense in which God is working through the everyday suffering of believers. But this verse is specifically talking about suffering for Christ. So here's a question. Are you suffering at all for your faith in Christ if you claim to be a believer? And if not, why not? But the point for now is this. One of the reasons we would not be frightened by our opponents is because we believe that even suffering is something that has been granted to God, granted from God to us to make us more like Christ, to develop our character. That's why we're not frightened. Because we believe that even our opponents are part of God's plan to bring about our sanctification. Listen, I'm not going to encourage you today to have charger pride. Number one, I don't think that would mean anything to you. Number two, even if you knew what that meant, or you knew what it was like to be from Sheraton, Iowa, my guess is it wouldn't motivate you anyway. But I am going to motivate you, or I am going to encourage you to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. To stand firm in one spirit. To strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and not to be frightened by our opponents. After all, if Jesus really did die on the cross for our sins, if he really did take the wrath of God on our behalf, if he really was willing to take the punishment that we deserve so that we could have the life that we did not deserve to have, then it seems only fitting that we would live in a way that is worthy of him. Let us make that our goal this week. In fact, let us make that our goal for the rest of our lives, that in everything we do, we would live in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ.